Well, the last several times that I've had to speak, I, I got last week off, my friend Steve Erickson came and, and taught. And, and, uh, but before that, I realized I had shared like several illustrations using sports. Now, it's obvious I like sports. It's baseball season. I, I really enjoy baseball. I, I like football, other sports. But I don't want to always use sports illustrations because I realize there are some of you that y- you could care less. Like last time I spoke, I talked about the NBA. I, I really don't care about the NBA. All right, so I get it. So I don't want to always talk about it. So when I realized, oh no, I'm going to start with a football illustration. Like, oh, this isn't good. But it's Father's Day. I feel like there's probably at least a couple of guys here that won't mind yet another sports illustration. So for those of you who hate sports, just put up with this for a moment because I I will move on. We're not going to talk about football the whole time. But football starts in two months. It's hard to believe, but preseason football is about to begin. I, I, I can't believe it. If you don't understand the game, it's pretty simple. You've got a football, kind of this oblong thing. Why it's called a football, I don't know, because they rarely touch it with their feet. But you've got this football, and the goal is to move it up the field. You've got this yardage. You're trying to get yardage and get the ball across the goal line. If you get it across, you score a touchdown. Why it's a touchdown, I don't know, because the guys never touch the ground. Well, some of them do if they get tackled in the end zone. But it's a touchdown, and they get six points for it, and then they have the option of kicking for another point to get seven, or they can attempt to try it again to get the ball into the end zone one more time, and they get two points. It's a two-point conversion. And that's the goal. But the other team doesn't want them to accomplish their goal. So they have a defense, and the defense is doing anything and everything they can to keep the ball from advancing along the line. So that means the offense has to call plays. It could be a running play, a passing play. They could even try a trick play. They're going to do anything and everything they can to try and advance that ball up the field. If they can get 10 yards, they get four more tries. And then another 10 yards, four more tries. But if they fail within the four tries, then the other team's going to get the ball. And so they will do anything and everything they can to move it forward. So they call these plays in. And if you're in high school, usually the coach grabs a player, tells them what the play is, the player runs in, and then tells everyone in the huddle. And then they go out and they do the play. If you're in like some of the larger college programs or the the NFL, they actually have earpieces in the helmets to the quarterback. And usually a coach up in the booth calls the play, and then the quarterback hears it in his earpiece, and then will tell everyone in the huddle. That's why occasionally in really loud stadiums, you'll see the quarterback put his hands over his ear holes because he's trying to hear the play being called into him. But every so often, the quarterback will walk up to the line, and as he's getting ready to get that hike from the the center, he looks out over the defense and realizes, if we run the play that we just called in the huddle, the defense is going to stop it. He can see that they're lined up just right. He thinks, this isn't the right play. We can't do this. So he calls an audible. He changes the play at the line of scrimmage. He he starts calling down, guys, guys, we're going to do this. We're going to change it. And he calls the play at the line. And then they hike the ball and they run the new play. He calls an audible. Good dads call audibles. A good dad knows that, all right, the situation, I had a plan going in and suddenly something, it it changes. Whether it be because the kids got sick or because, you know, the kids are misbehaving or something else is going on, they will call an audible. They start with one plan, but they have to adjust the plan. Good teachers do this in the classroom all the time. There, there's moments where surgeons have to call an audible in the operating room. Counselors, when they're sitting down with a, a client 
as the, as the patient starts sharing their story, they all of a sudden have to call an audible and realize, I've got to go a different direction with this than I originally thought. This week, I called an audible. Last fall, I put together kind of my preaching calendar for 2017 and kind of mapped out much of this His Story series. And for this particular week, I had a story all picked out that I was super excited about. I love the story of the famous prophets Elijah and Elisha. Elijah only comprises about three chapters. He's mentioned in a couple of others, so I guess you could say he's in about five chapters of the Bible. And yet, in those five chapters, amazing things happen. Like there's the whole story of the bull and and the fire coming down from heaven. and, And you just see Elijah do some remarkable things. He's so remarkable that when Jesus in the New Testament has this moment where he goes up on a hill, he's got Peter, James, and John with him, and he goes through what's called the transfiguration. For one moment, it's like he sheds his earthly skin for a second and just begins to glow. It's like he's transformed, transfigured into his heavenly glory. And suddenly, Peter, James, and John realize that it's not just Jesus standing there. There's two others with him, and it's Moses and Elijah, two of the greatest prophets in all of of, uh, Israel's history. That's how big Elijah is. And yet when Elijah gets taken away, he says to Elisha, kind of his, his you know, uh, mentor, uh, mentoree, I guess you could call him. He says, what do you want before I'm taken? And Elisha says, I want a double portion of your spirit. And sure enough, this week as I was working on this message for Elijah and Elisha, Elijah did 14 different miracles or was involved in 14 different miracles. But Elisha was involved in 28 And many of the miracles that Elisha did mimicked what Elijah did and even went further. And the reason I geek out over the story is because Elijah and Elisha point to John the Baptist and Jesus. And as a little nerd, I kind of find it really fascinating. So I was really excited to come and bring this to my church family. So Monday, I pull out my, you know, preaching calendar. Oh, yeah, here are the passages for this week, and I'm reading on it, and I start thinking about it. And then Tuesday, I sit down, and I really start working on it. But by Wednesday, I'm really frustrated because I realize this was becoming just an academic exercise. Yeah, sure, the nerd in me is going, man, this is intellectually stimulating. This is wonderful. But the pastor in me was really frustrated because I do not want a church that just knows a lot, just gets impacted in the head, And none of it penetrates down to the heart. I think we got enough of those type of Christians out there. What I want to do is help you to see Jesus. And as you find him, you begin to follow him. And it impacts who you are. And it affects everything you do. And the way you relate with your family. And the way you relate with your neighbors. And the way you do your job. I want to see your faith move from the head thing to a heart thing. And I just wasn't getting there through Elijah and Elisha. Now those of you that are doing the Bible reading program along with this His Story series might remember that a couple weeks ago, we were in 1 Kings, and we hit some of the uh, Solomon's story. And I kind of got caught up in what I was reading and was reading a little extra, and I started reading all about the temple. And there were some things there that kind of sparked some things in me. And I realized that's going to be far more beneficial for my Riverwood family than the story of Elijah and Elisha that I want to do. And so I called an audible. Now, because I put some time into Elijah and Elisha, I went ahead and kind of put it together as a blog post. I'm going to finish that up, and I'm going to post it on the Riverwood site tomorrow. Uh, So if you want to see a little bit of what I learned and why I kind of get, 
you know, excited about the story, just go to the blog tomorrow and you can read about Elijah and Elisha and why I believe that they point to John the Baptist and to Jesus. But today, we're going to look at the temple. We're going to see the building of the first temple. And primarily, we're going to see the dedication of the first temple. What I think is we're going to not only learn something that's going to impact our head, but I think we're going to see through this something that will impact our heart. Because I'm hoping that this will encourage you, challenge you, help you see God's love for you, and also what God has for you and how he wants to use you for the glory of him and to bless others. So if you brought a Bible, open it up to 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 8. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, we always have some back on the Give and Grow table. Also, we are totally fine here at Riverwood with using a, a Bible app on your phone. So if you don't have one, I encourage you to download it. But just so we're all on the same page, I do have the scripture up on the screen for those of you that don't have one. As you turn into First Kings, let me set just a little bit of background. Some of you that have been tracking with this His Story series will remember when we were back with Moses. And Moses helped lead the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And they came out and we saw God do all sorts of miracles. And yet, despite all these miracles, Israelites didn't trust God. They continually fell in these moments of doubt, thinking that God was actually there to harm them, that he wasn't for them. And so because of this doubt, because of, of their lack of trust, we see God say, all right, fine. You're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until the, those that don't trust me die off and those who do trust me can then enter into the promised land. And so what they would do is they would follow this pillar of cloud that represented God. And when it would stop, it was kind of an indication. I guess we set up camp. And so they would set up camp. And there was even specific instructions for where all of the different tribes were to set up. And right in the middle of camp was the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the place where people would come to worship. That, that pillar of cloud would come and descend right in front of it. It's where Moses would enter to talk with God. The sacrifices of animals would take place there in their worship. It was for the forgiveness of sins. Much of the, the, the worship, the religion of the Jewish people at that time took place at the tabernacle. But it was just a tent. It was a really nice tent, big tent. There were specific instructions how to do it. But it was still a tent. And when that pillar of cloud would pick up and start to move off, it was an indication, it's time to go. So everyone would have to pack up their own things and they'd pack up the tabernacle. And they'd take off, and when the pillar of cloud stopped, they'd do it again. Well, the 40 years passed. Moses is not allowed to lead the people into the promised land. That passes to Joshua. And Joshua then leads the people across the Jordan River and they begin to settle. They, they conquer many of the, the people that are there. They begin to take possession of the land. And that meant they were no longer traveling. They were no longer wanderers. And so therefore, they didn't have to keep setting up this tabernacle. And so what happened was they went to a place called Shiloh, or they named it Shiloh. It was about 18 miles north of Jerusalem. They set up the tabernacle, and it stayed. But again, it was just a tent. And so to protect it from some of their enemies, they actually ended up putting a wall around it. And there was some doors. And it started to become sort of a permanent structure, but it was still the tabernacle. Well, there's a kind of a funny story where the Israelites are fighting against the Philistines and it's not going so well. So the Israelites think if we just bring out the Ark of the Covenant, this is their most precious religious relic. It's in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, the, the place that only the, the pr certain priests could go into. They thought if we bring this out to the battlefield, God will give us victory. The, the problem was the people weren't exactly following God at this time. And so they bring the ark out, and God still lets them lose. And the Philistines take possession of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, it's a pretty funny story, because the Philistines take it, and they stick it in their temple, and they stick it right next to one of their idols, this god called Dagon. 
And the next morning they come in and Dagon has fallen down next to the Ark of the Covenant. And so they lift it back up. And the next morning they come in and Dagon has fallen down again. This time his head has fallen off and his arms have fallen off. And suddenly the Philistines freak out. They're like, oh my goodness, the Israelite God is more powerful than our God. We got to get rid of this thing. So they move it to another city. All the people in that city, they like break out in boils. They get sick. They're like, ah, we can't keep it here. So they take it to another city and some more bad things happen. Finally, the Philistines are like, oh, we don't want this anymore. So like, just give it back to the Israelites and like, give them gifts. Like, say we're sorry. You know, just take it, take it back. But in the meantime, while they had it, archaeology reveals that the Philistines had actually gone and destroyed the tabernacle. I mean, they got the Ark of the Covenant, so they went and destroyed this. It was about the time that Eli, Samuel's uh, mentor, died. And so therefore, the Israelites had no place to now put this Ark of the Covenant. And so they just kind of kept it at certain houses for a while. That's why when King David comes along, ends up defeating more of their enemies, really establishes the kingdom, he's thinking, this is, this is crazy. He is the king, has a really nice palace, and yet the Ark of the Covenant has no home. And he has this sense, like, we should build a temple. But God says no. God says David, you were a man of war. Your hands have blood on them. You may not build my temple. I'm going to let your son Solomon do it. And so David begins to collect items to get it ready so that when he dies and Solomon takes over as king, Solomon can start building the temple. And that's what we find here in 1 Kings. In chapter 5 of 1 Kings, we see Solomon continuing to gather the elements that were needed. Chapter 6, we see them actually begin to build it. At the end of chapter 6, we discover it took seven years to build this temple. Chapter 7, we then see them finalizing it. They're like furnishing it with everything that they were going to need. And then chapter 8, it's time. They go and they get the Ark of the Covenant and they bring it, and the whole nation comes together. It's a big celebration and a big dedication of this temple. And they bring the ark in, and there's sacrifices taking place. And then Solomon stands up in front of the people, and he begins to pray. And as we watch this king pray, as we listen to his prayer, there are four things that we learn about the temple itself that is actually going to help us to understand how to follow Jesus. So look at it with me. First Kings chapter 8. You know what? Let, let me pray before we, we get into it. Father God, um, we're about to uh, read from the scriptures. And I pray that today would not be just merely an academic exercise. That we don't just learn simply about a temple and, and walk out and understanding more of, of Judaism, ancient Judaism. But that instead, you would speak to our, our, our minds and our hearts. That, that for those that are here today that are Jesus followers that there would be something that would be said that would help them to want to go deeper with you, to follow you. They'd feel encouraged. They'd feel challenged. If there's things that you want to call them to correct, to change in their life, that today they would just have that sense that this is what you're calling them to do because you love them and you have something better for them. So God, that's why I say right now, would you help us to hear truly from you that this wouldn't just be another message we hear, but it's something that you're doing to shape us, to mold us, to become more like your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, 1 Kings 8, start in verse 22. We're going we're gonna to see four things. The first one here is the temple was the place of worship. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping your covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. 
I don't know about you, but when I pray, I often find myself starting off by acknowledging who I'm praying to. Uh, you know, I might say Heavenly Father or, or Father God, you know, if I'm feeling really spiritual, you know, almost high or, you know, I, I'll start off with who I'm praying to. But then I've noticed about the third or fourth, maybe fifth word, the next word that comes out of my mouth is I, me, my. Like, I'm praying because I need something. I'm expressing this to God. I don't think that's wrong. I don't think it's sinful. Because when we're praying, we're expressing our dependence upon God. And God has created us with his image in us. And so when we express our dependence upon him, I think it's helping us to connect with him. So, so it's okay. But what I notice about Solomon's prayer is the third word is not I. It's not even we. You notice he starts off saying, O Lord, God of Israel. And then he just continues on describing this God. And it's not because God doesn't know who he is. He's saying this for his sake and the people. He's reminding them, we are here to worship God. This is all about him. Because he's standing there in front of the temple where the Ark of the Covenant has just been taken inside. He's standing right next to the altar where all of these animals are going to be sacrificed for the sins of the people. He stands there on the steps and he just prays. Because he realizes we are in the place of worship. We have come to God. So that's the first thing I notice about this, is that the temple is a place of worship. The next thing we notice is that the temple, let me make sure I get this right, is that the temple represented God's presence. The temple represented God's presence. Skip over to verse 27. In verse 27, Solomon is still praying. He says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? And behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Many of the other people groups around that time, they, they had this understanding of gods. And these gods would be out there, but yet they had these idols and these temples. And, and somehow they, they thought that this would become like the location of their god. And Solomon was pausing to say, you know, it, it's ridiculous. An ark cannot contain the presence of God. A, a tent, a tabernacle cannot contain it. A temple cannot contain it. Even the universe cannot contain our God. He is just that big, that majestic, that glorious. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere, every, all the time. So it's ridiculous to think that he is going to be confined in this house. And yet the temple was still important. Because it represented the presence of God with the people. It, it was the place that they would come to, to worship. It was the place where these sacrifices were going to take place. It's where they would come to offer up their prayers. They knew that God cannot be confined to this little structure. And yet, it represented the idea that he was with them. That they were not abandoned by their God, but that he was with them. Next thing we notice is that the temple belonged to God. Keep going there, verse 28. Solomon says, Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. As Solomon is saying, God, I'm praying to you, and I need you to hear me. 
Because this is your house. The, the, the phrase there that really sticks out to me is where he says, my name shall be there. At some point, in, in, whether it was the planning or the preparation or the actual building of the temple, God communicated to Solomon, my name shall be there. When, his, when, when you say, my name will be there, you're saying, I'm going to put my name, my brand, my identity on this. I'm claiming ownership. Now, Solomon's financing this thing. The, the priests are going to be the ones working in it. The uh, people are the ones who actually built it. And yet God says, it's mine. It's mine. That's my house. My name shall be upon it. The temple belongs to me. But that's important because of what we see next. As, as he's praying this, Solomon begins a pattern of prayer where he basically starts painting a scenario of something bad, something not going right. And that if the people will go to the temple, or if they will even look toward the temple, the place that represents God's presence, and if they will pray, it's like the temple becomes a conduit for their prayers and for God's blessing. Look, look at one of these with me. Uh, skip down to verse 33. When your people, Israel, are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. And so do you see it? He's saying that if we walk away from you to the point that we actually get defeated by our enemies and we're taken away, if we will even just look at the temple, if we will pray to this place, it's like our prayers come through the temple because he says, may our prayers come up to you in heaven. So it goes through there. And then Lord, would you return us? Would you pour your blessings back to us? And if you keep reading there, you see him talk about, Lord, if we find ourselves in drought or if we find ourselves in a famine or if, if this sort of sin is going on or if we're in battle, like he keeps painting all these scenarios and it says, if the situation's bad and we turn towards you, if we come to the temple, the place of your presence, as we offer our prayers up, the temple's like a conduit to bring our prayers before your throne, would you then pour your blessing out to us? This temple becomes a conduit for our prayers to him and also these blessings to the people. So these four things, we notice through his prayer that the, the temple is the place of worship. It was the place where it was represented by God's presence. Uh, it was, I mean, it was representative of his presence. The, the temple belonged to God, and it was a conduit. So great. We've just learned four things about the temple. Now, how is this going to help us follow Jesus? It happens when we go into the New Testament, and we start seeing some things that are being said that now takes what we just learned about a temple— and helps us see how it helps us to follow Jesus. So if you know where 1 Corinthians is, flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6. If you're not familiar with the letter of 1 Corinthians, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul wrote much of the New Testament. Most of them are letters written to specific churches. He would hear about a situation going on at a church, and so he would write to encourage them and remind them, here's what it means to follow Jesus. Well, the church in Corinth... They were a mess. Uh, we studied the, the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, I think it was fall of 2015 into the spring of 2016. And we, we kind of divided it up into little different series. So if you went on the Riverwood website, you could go and, and hear much of those if you, if you wanted to study this book with us. But what we saw was him have to address topic after topic after topic. Every once in a while as a pastor, I will hear other pastors say that they want to lead a New Testament church. And when they say that, I think to myself, 
you must not have read the book of 1 Corinthians. I mean, because this is a first, uh, I mean, a New Testament church. And and yet, I I don't want Riverwood looking anything like this church. Uh, Because when you dive into it, one of the first things you see is they had all sorts of factions. They they were divided. Certain people were saying, oh, I really like Paul. And others, I like Apollos. Or no, we follow Peter. And then the others, the super spiritual ones going, oh, but we follow Jesus. You know, like they were divided. It was like all these cliques. I, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be part of a church with a bunch of cliques. That's just, that's just not fun to feel left out and, and to have all these divisions. The people were also suing one another. I, I do not want to be a part of a church that we sue one another. Right? Besides, if you try to sue me, you're not going to get much because I, I really don't have much. Right? But it, I don't want to go through that experience. Right? It, 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 that's not what I want to have. It, you see this church be incredibly selfish. Man, Riverwood would not work if we were a selfish people. There are people who selflessly get up early on Sunday mornings to come here to help set this place up. If we were all selfish, none of this would happen. But because of selflessness, we're able to gather to worship God. Man, the the church in Corinth, they were so selfish. Another thing that they were wrestling with was sexual immorality. The city of Corinth was, was located in a very strategic place where a lot of commerce traffic was coming through. And what that meant was all these different people and cultures brought with them their religions. And eventually, different temples sprung up. And so you had a lot of different religions, a lot of different cults, and a lot of different practices. And underneath the Roman Empire, it was kind of a mess sexually. Some of that began to creep into the church. A lot of these Jesus followers used to be part of these religions, used to be part of these cults. And when they heard the gospel, they changed. Sometimes they got affected and, and ended up back into other things including sexual immorality. And that's what Paul is addressing in chapter 6 here in his letter. And here's what he says, but it's going to help us understand this idea of a temple at the same time. Uh, Start in verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Paul is writing to a group of people that used to follow false gods, and they would go to these temples to worship. Whether it was to sacrifice animals, whether it was to pray, whether it was to engage in certain activities, whether they be with temple prostitutes or, or to, to, you know, eat certain things. They knew what a temple was for. And Paul is flipping the entire concept on its head. Help them see that a temple, if you follow Jesus, isn't about a place you go to to be in the presence of that God. That if you follow Jesus, the presence of God has come to you and you become a temple. And suddenly, the four things that we just saw in Solomon's prayer now help us see how we should begin to follow Jesus. And so look at it, the, the, the four things again. Remember, the, the temple was the place of worship. So this means that if you follow Jesus and you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, then you can worship God anywhere. It, worship doesn't become just a Sunday morning thing. It, it means that worship is also a Monday morning thing and a Tuesday night thing, and a Saturday night thing. It doesn't matter if you're outdoors. For me, I love being outside. That's easy to worship there. But when you're stuck inside some little cubicle, guess what? You can still worship. When you're driving in your car, you can still worship. When you're in a difficult conversation, 
when you are just down in the dumps, you can still worship. Because you are a temple. And at the temple, you worship. Because again, the second thing, remember that the temple was the representative of God's presence? That's why you can worship. Because God is always with you. It also means you are never alone. Never. So even when you start going through something and you're thinking, no one knows what I'm going through or no one cares what I'm going through, you have a God that is with you. He knows exactly what you're feeling. He knows exactly what's going on in your head and he loves you. You are never alone. And that alone right there should cause you to want to worship him. But then also we saw that the temple belonged to God. And that's what Paul says so incredibly vividly right there. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Think about it. God created humans. So he's created your body. That right there should give him ownership. But because sin came into the world and stole us away from him in a sense, he also purchased us through the blood of Jesus. So you were created by him and you've been purchased by him. You are doubly his. If you were a car, it would mean that God not only created you, he also walked and bought you off the lot. You are doubly his. He has the title to you. Which means your body's not yours. It belongs to him. So you can't do with your body whatever you want. This means that the gospel affects then what we eat, and how much we eat. It affects what we drink, and how much of it we drink. It affects sleep. It affects what we wear. It affects exercise. It affects sex. It affects a lot of things, because your body is not your own. Through the gospel, your body has been purchased by God. And so you can't just go and do with it whatever you want. You, did you notice that there was incredible reverence that Solomon had as he's praying to God? If we had time and, and go and look at it, I'd encourage you to go read uh, chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8 of 1 Kings. You'll notice the reverence, especially in chapter 8 as they're bringing the ark in. There is incredible reverence for this temple because this temple belongs to God. Do you have the same type of reverence to your body? You should because your body is precious. It's holy. It's been bought by God. It's only here for a time. Your body will eventually die off. Who you are inside does not. So be a steward. Take care of your body because it belongs to God. And it's one way you can worship and honor him. But then the last thing we noticed there was that the temple was to be a conduit. Remember the people's prayers, if they prayed towards the temple, would like go to heaven and, and pray for God's blessing to come to them. Likewise, I believe then if you are a temple, then you should be a conduit. You are to be a conduit of God's blessing to other people. I think this is part of what God's created us for. I don't think we come into this relationship with Jesus just for our own benefit. Yes, there's a lot of benefit. We receive the, the love, the grace of God. We experience his mercy. We get to come into his presence. The, the image of Jesus is being restored within us. But yet, it's not just for us. It's for others. We are to be a conduit. Back in Genesis chapter 3, uh, actually chapter 1, God created Adam and Eve, and he created them in his image. The image of God was in them. 
which meant they were to reflect a bit of God. It, it was through their will, their personality, their, their intellect. I mean, if you just look at all of creation, humanity is just at a different place. And, and humanity was supposed to care for this creation. But when Adam and Eve sinned, sin entered in and infected everything, including that image of God within them. Now, it didn't get removed. It's still there, but it became distorted. It became cracked, marred. And so God's response to Genesis 3 when they sinned in the Garden of Eden is the cross of Jesus. In fact, God even says it right there to the serpent who helped lead, tempt Adam and Eve into eating of this forbidden fruit. He even begins to prophesy right then and there about the coming of the Messiah. And so Jesus comes, and even though he's God in the flesh, so he's never sinned, he's still fully human and can be killed. And he did. He went and died a sinner's death, a criminal's death, even though he'd never done anything wrong. But that very selfless act is exactly what God used to begin to restore the image within us. It's his response to the sin of Adam and Eve. And so our sin, which deserves death, gets paid for. And when it gets paid for, when our eyes get opened, and we understand the truth of this, we then can enter into this relationship with God, and the image of God begins to be restored in us. That's why Paul talks about us becoming a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes in and begins that restoration process to make you back into the image of God, so that you will go and love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. Well, how did Jesus live? He lived for others. We see Jesus down on his knees, washing the feet of his disciples. We see Jesus out with the people, feeding 5,000, 4,000 people with nothing but a, a couple loaves and some fish. We see Jesus healing people. We see Jesus out there teaching them about the kingdom of God. We see him calling people to repentance. He did not exist for himself. He did not come to this earth telling people to bow down before him because he's a king. He came to give his life for others. So if the image of God is to be restored within us, it means our life is to be for others. We are to be a conduit of God's blessing for other people. So I want you to walk out of here today simultaneously encouraged and yet challenged. I want you to be encouraged because God is with you. If you are a follower of Jesus, his Holy Spirit is in you and he's always with you. You were never alone, so you can worship him. But I want to challenge you. Are you caring for his temple? Are you caring for your body? And also, how can you be a conduit to others? Are you using your body to be a blessing to others? So simple things. Use your ears. Just listen. Sometimes that's all people need. They just need you to listen. Being listened, they feel valued, they feel heard, they feel loved. When you listen, make sure you use your eyes. Don't stare at your phone. Don't look at the TV at the restaurant behind them. Look at them. Give them your eyes. Give them your presence. Dads, use your hands. Love your kids. Help them. Help others. If someone's moving, go over. Give them some shoulder power. What are you doing to use your body to be a blessing, a conduit of God's blessing to others? Care for your body. And use it to bless others. That's what it means to be a temple. Little did those first century Jews know that as they're standing before the first Jewish temple, where all this worship was going to be taking place, they had no idea that, that was to be an image of what God was going to do later. 
that when Jesus came, he was going to flip it all on its head and it wasn't going to become about a certain location. It was going to become about the people. If you follow Jesus, you are a temple. I also want to just finish with this. I love my Riverwood family. I want every single one of you to be passionate about Jesus. I want you going out those doors and I want you making a difference on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and every day that ends in Y. That's what I long for my church family. But I want you to imagine what it's like if we didn't each just go out there and individually try to do it. But we went knowing I am part of a group of people, a church that does this together. Because when God talks about his church, he uses several illustrations. He talks about it being a family. He talks about it like a building. But he also uses the word body. The church is the body of Christ. Which means that we as a body are also a temple. What can we do together? We're here to come together to worship. We've got to realize God is with us. And we are to go, even as a church family, to be a blessing. I think it'd be awesome that when we come to our growth groups, when we come in, we're able to tell people how we see God using us and their celebration. Or we hear how God is using someone else, and we get to celebrate that with them. And we realize, I'm not alone in this. I am not just to be a temple by myself. I am part of something bigger. So I want to encourage you, don't try and do this on your own. Connect with others, whether it's in a growth group, doing breakfast with someone, just sharing it with with others, emailing them. Like, let's band together and be God's church in Waverly and Denver and Shell Rock and Janesville and Cedar Falls and Iowa and beyond. That's what I think it means to be a temple. It isn't just doing it alone. It's doing it together. So, Father, I pray you would create us as a temple. We are one because the the Spirit of Christ is with us. Lord, there are many, many, many people here that have a faith in Jesus. They know you, they love you, and I pray that you would use them in tremendous ways to be a conduit of your blessing to others. Lord, I just pray right now for any of my brothers and sisters in Jesus who are struggling because they are not caring for their body. And as we talked about that, there was a sense of conviction. I pray that they wouldn't walk out of here feeling bad. That instead, they would turn their eyes towards you and they would realize you're calling them to something better. And Lord, if they need to partner up with someone to help them in that, pray that they just link arms with someone and together make the changes that they need to, whether it be because of food or or drink or uh, exercise or, or whatever it might be, so that we can care for these temples, so that we can have the years that we need to to be your blessing to others. God, I also realize there's a lot of people outside of those doors that are hurting. And what they need is you. And some of the people in this very room are who you are calling, raising up to go and be that blessing to them. The way that those friends and family are going to find a connection with their creator, it could be through us. So Lord, I pray that you'd help us to realize that we are filled with your Holy Spirit. And as that temple of the Holy Spirit, you want us to then use our body. So help us to use our hands, to use our eyes, to use our ears, to use our feet, to help others. But it isn't just a physical help. That they would eventually come to understand who you are. 
God, I pray for anyone that's here this morning that does not know you. They know about you. Maybe they know how to play the Christian game. And yet you're calling them to something deeper because you don't want them to just put on an act. You want them to be real, to be authentic, and let your Holy Spirit be the center of their lives. And as they get Jesus-centered, they get this excitement and this joy of being used by you to be a blessing to others. God, we want to see lives changed. But for us to see the lives of others changed, it means we need to be changed. So God, start right here in each of us. Draw us to your presence. Do in us what you need to do. Help us to realize that we are temples, that your presence is with us, and we are to care for this temple so that we can go and do what you've called us to do. So God, help us to love like Jesus loved and to live like Jesus lived each and every day for your glory, for the blessing of others, and for our joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.